Welcome back to Chaos. Let me remind you where we are in our detective story. So the mystery started with Newton's clockwork universe, which seemed to rule out the possibility of chaos once and for all. Its deterministic character seemed to leave no room for chance, no possibility for chaos. But then came the first clue that something was rotten in the clockwork. Remember what it was, that was the intractability of the three-body problem in astronomy. Hundreds of years go by, no one can solve it. Next comes what seems like a break in the case. Based on visualization, a new technique, Poincaré, the great French mathematician, thinks he may have a way of solving the three-body problem. And in the course of his work, he uh, thinks at first he's solved it, enters a contest, submits his brilliant solution, wins the prize, except that a question comes up about his method, and he then realizes, oh, wait a second, I made an error. He catches his error, works feverishly to figure out what's going wrong, and then in the course of that, it turns out he has not solved the problem, but he's discovered something much greater. He's discovered deterministic chaos. The phenomenon being that, that simple deterministic systems, which have no element of chance in them, nothing random about them, can look like they're behaving randomly and can act unpredictable, wildly unpredictable. Poincaré is not happy about it. He recoils from the implication, but nobody else is really worried because they don't understand what he did. It's so, it's so arcane and so abstract, involving thinking in 18-dimensional space, which Poincaré can do, but nobody else can do. And um, so that's where things sit. And that, that brings us to our lecture today. I'm sorry, to this, to this lecture right now. So for the next 70 years after Poincaré, chaos remains a really pretty quiet backwater of science, not the hottest area in town, certainly not, cultivated only by a small priesthood, really, a mathematical priesthood that's devoted to thinking about what Poincaré did, but it's on the order of maybe five or ten people in the world. You should understand why. This, this was an era when science was becoming increasingly specialized, and math itself was starting to look inward. That happens once in a while in the history of science, that there are times when scientists are feeling expansive and talking to each other, other times when they become introspective and concerned with their own subject. For example, in the 1700s and 1800s, in the, the era of Newton and afterward, people were in the expansive mood. The, the best mathematicians also did astronomy and physics. But now, at the, the turn, just beginning the 20th century, mathematicians really only wanted to think about math itself. Why was that? Well, through all their interactions with physics and astronomy, they had started to think intuitively, and they got into certain logical paradoxes, it turned out. That is, certain things you'd want to do by common sense turned out to have mathematical problems, and there, there came to be a feeling that we need to be more rigorous. And so math, to kind of correct its own foundations, turned inward at that point and, and focused on its own internal structure. Physicists, meanwhile, had their own problems. Now it was the era of atomic physics, and, and people were worrying about electrons and radiations, uh, uh, radiation only recently discovered, radioactivity, things like that. And so they were in no mood to be fretting about a problem, the three-body problem in, in classical Newtonian physics. That was done as far as everybody was concerned, and the action was somewhere else. So this was then an, an era when there was really no great motivation to think about what Poincaré had done. And his flame almost went out. But it was kept barely flickering 
by an American mathematician by the name of George David Birkhoff, who taught at Harvard and was himself a, a very fine mathematician, notable, I would say, especially for being the first great mathematician to be trained completely in America. That was unusual, right? The best people went to Europe for their training, but, but not Birkhoff. He stayed here, he taught here, and he trained a number of other American mathematicians who followed him. And along with Birkhoff, there was also work on dynamical systems, which is what Poincaré's area had come to be called, uh, work being done by a handful of mathematicians in the Soviet Union and in um, Europe and England. Okay, now, curiously, what really kept Poincaré's work going was not these mathematicians, although they contributed quite a bit, but the engineers stepped in. We haven't talked much about engineering in this course, but there were mathematical mathematically inclined engineers, let's say, as many engineers are, who were interested in what Poincaré had done, but not with regard to chaos. That was an interesting thing. I mean, Poincaré's work was so powerful that it touched on all kinds of complicated problems relevant to differential equations. And these engineers wanted to use his methods to, to analyze what were called oscillators, devices that could produce clean periodic signals for example, in thinking about the electrical oscillations of vacuum tubes, which were only recently developed and, and were being used. These were newfangled technologies being used in the first radios and telephones and then later in radar and television and even lasers. So oscillators became a big topic in electrical engineering. And while studying them, these mathematically-minded engineers found it useful to extend some of what Poincaré had done, his visual approach. Well, in the course of their experiments, what sometimes happened is that the engineers would trip across their own hints of chaos. For example, there was a team of Dutch engineers who were noticing a peculiar hiss in a circuit that they were studying. It didn't seem to them like the usual random noise that sometimes afflicted radio circuits. But they didn't know what it was, and they reported it, but they couldn't really make sense of it, and, and that was that. They left it. And it was, in retrospect, clear that what was happening is they were hearing the sound of chaos, deterministic chaos in their circuit, later figured out by two British mathematicians, Mary Cartwright and J.E. Littlewood. Likewise, a Japanese researcher named Hayashi spent a long time looking at oscillators, and had observed chaos dozens of times, but he never reported it. We, now, why not? And how do we know that he was even thinking about it? Well, because he had a student years later. Now I'm fast-forwarding to around 1970 or 80 when chaos is in full flower, and this student reports the first electrical chaos in circuits, and his advisor, the famous Hayashi, tells him, but I've seen that dozens of times. I'm going back many years into the 60s. And uh, his student, Ueda, says, but professor, you'd never publish it. You never told me about this. And, and that's right. Hayashi kept it to himself. He didn't know what he had. He, he may have thought that his circuits were malfunctioning. The point here is that without any conceptual framework for thinking about chaos, either because people were unaware of Poincaré or unable to understand him or just didn't think that his work applied in their context, researchers like these dismissed the chaos that they were observing directly or they ignored it. Or, I think what was really happening in many cases is they simply couldn't see what they were seeing. It's a curious thing about human psychology, that if you don't have the right mental framework, 
you sometimes can't see what's right in front of your face. Well, so let me now come to the main topic of this lecture, which is the, the first time when this calm period of 70 years after Poincaré ends. The calm ended with a thunderclap, which seems appropriate because the man who created it was a man obsessed with weather prediction and storms. So in the rest of this lecture, I'll tell you the dramatic story of the work of Ed Lorenz, a meteorologist at MIT, and his rediscovery of chaos in a much more dramatic and stark form than what Poincaré had seen. You, you really can't miss it now, you would think, after Lorenz's work. Lorenz found this chaos, this full-blown chaos, in a model of weather patterns that he developed. Before I tell you about his fantastic work, I, I have to tell you about this man. I had the privilege of getting to know him when I was a young assistant professor working at MIT, and he himself, as I say, was a meteorologist at MIT working in the Earth and Planetary Sciences Department. Now, everybody regards Professor Lorenz as one of the great pioneers of chaos theory. He's universally admired and respected. And so it's particularly striking when you meet him that this is an absolutely modest and unassuming man who does not come across as brilliant. He really reminds you of some kind of roadside farmer that you might meet if you were going out to buy vegetables or something. I mean, he really seems like a Yankee farmer, like the guy that does the Pepperidge Farm commercials. So every year we would go through a certain little ritual that I came to uh, have a, a, an affectionate feeling of anticipation for, which was I was teaching a class on chaos, and I felt I've got to invite Professor Lorenz to come talk to my students. We've spent three weeks on the Lorenz equations, which I'll be telling you about in this lecture and the next three lectures to come. And so, you know, the students with all this background in the Lorenz equations, and Professor Lorenz is about three minutes away in the next building, let's have him come to the class. So I would call him up, dear, you know, Professor Lorenz, would you be willing to come talk to my class? And then he would say in his monotone, yes, I would, yes, I'd be happy to come. So then I'd say, fantastic. But then he would always ask, and we did this, I would say, maybe six years in a row. He'd say, what would you like me to talk about? So, so what should you talk about, Professor Lorenz? Well, how about the Lorenz equations? <laughs> you know, I mean, Einstein, would you like to talk about relativity to the class? How about the Lorenz equations? But then he would always say, that little model? You really want me to talk about that little thing? And then he would come to the class and not talk about it. At this point, he was 70 or 80 years old, and he would talk about whatever he was working on at the moment. And he was still publishing. And our class never cared because they were so awestruck and so thrilled to be getting a glimpse of this man who created modern chaos theory. That, and in fact, whatever he was doing now was pretty interesting too. But so that little model is what I'll be telling you about, and it really did change the way we look at the world. Now, Lorenz himself was born in 1917 and grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut. As a boy, he liked weather. He certainly was interested in weather, but he wasn't what you would call a weather bug. What he really loved was math. He went to college at Dartmouth, studied math, thought he would go into math, and in 1938, he got his degree, undergraduate degree in math. And then he went on to get a master's degree at Harvard from Berkhoff. Okay, so there's an interesting link. Poincaré to Berkhoff, to Lorenz. So he studied, he got this master's degree, he's all ready to go on to become a mathematician, but it's 1938 and you know what's coming. 
World War II. World War II broke out. Lorenz goes into the Army Air Corps and finds himself working as a weather forecaster. After the war, he continued to be interested in weather forecasting, and he wanted to help develop the mathematical theory behind it, which was at that point in a pretty rudimentary state. That is, weather forecasting had been something like black magic, and, and even maybe to some extent still has some of that. It's very tough to predict the weather. The best people in, in meteorology knew that and didn't want to go into forecasting. There were other problems, but forecasting was sort of like reading tea leaves, and people felt this is not something that a really talented person should go into. But Lorenz didn't agree. There were, there were three approaches at the time to this problem of weather forecasting. And let me just outline what they are because they'll be relevant for our story. The first is what you could think of as dynamical forecasting in the spirit of Isaac Newton. That is, we're going to write down the correct differential equations for the atmosphere, for pressure, temperature, humidity, everything. Enormously complicated, much harder than the three-body problem even. And then by solving those differential equations on computers, we will try to inch the weather forward one instant at a time, and, and the problem being very difficult because not only are there all these variables, but you have to keep track of the weather at every point on the map in three dimensions. So it's really tough. But anyway, so that's one approach, and it, it wasn't tremendously successful, especially with the early computers of those days. The other, another approach that was common was what you might think of as pattern matching. That is, you look for weather that reminds you of the weather you're seeing today, and you see what happened in the last time you saw weather like this. Okay, so that's a kind of common sense way to do it, basing forecasts on previous experience. And a third way, which was a kind of newcomer and was challenging these other two, was statistical weather forecasting, where what you would do is, and this might sound ridiculous, just a mathematical version of tea leaves, but what you would do is take, say, you want to calculate the temperature in New York at 4 o'clock. You would write down some formula, like maybe the temperature in New York is one-third the temperature in Cleveland four hours earlier, plus one-eighth the temperature in St. Louis 10 hours earlier, plus a certain, you know, fudge factor for the humidity in some other place. And, and you have all these numbers that you could adjust in front of all the possible variables that you thought matter. And you adjust them till they give the best fit, and then that's your model. It doesn't have any physics in it. It's just totally fitting curves. Okay, so statistical forecasting, that third way of doing things. Now, what Lorenz was primarily interested in, the problem he set himself, was are these statistical methods any good? Could I test them? Not just against real weather, and this is a clever trick he thought of. He thought, maybe what I could do is create artificial weather in a computer and use that to test these statistical forecasting methods. I'll make a surrogate for the weather that'll be simpler than the weather, and maybe I can use I, uh, the advantage is I can run hundreds of days of weather very fast in the computer. I can see if the statistical methods, treating this as if it were real weather, will predict what really happens in the computer and so on. So, so this was a really cool, novel strategy because Lorenz was using the computer in a new way. It was now an arena for thought experiments. You see, it's not just a calculating machine calculating the solutions to differential equations or anything like that. It's a, it's a place where you can play games. You can do thought experiments. So this was already an interesting bit of creativity on his part. Well, another thing that was unusual is that Lorenz was doing so many of these computer experiments that he felt it was worthwhile to have a computer in his office. 
And that was totally unusual because this is the early 1960s. People would go to computer centers in some big, you know, with a giant machine in a big room. But he had a kind of personal computer of its era called the Royal McBee. And it was uh, very unusual. Personal computers as we know them were 25 years away. Well, so what happened when Lorenz did these computer experiments? The trouble was it's hard to make a good model of the weather in a computer. His first version of artificial weather was too simple. It would always settle down either to some kind of equilibrium state where it wasn't changing, which isn't like the real weather, or it would change, but in too simple a way. It would always repeat after a while. So it would be periodic, just repeating in perfect cycles. That's not the way the weather works either. So he realized that what he needed was to concoct some kind of a system that he could solve in his computer, so it had to be a deterministic system of differential equations, but it shouldn't be periodic. It should never repeat. Otherwise, the artificial weather would just be too simple and it wouldn't provide a a good test of these forecasting methods that he was trying to study. All right, so he had to struggle for a long time to come up with a deterministic system that would do this, that wouldn't repeat itself. And eventually he did. What he had forgotten to put into his model was the effect of, geographical effect of the heating. Now, everyone knows that it's hotter near the equator than up near the poles. So you would want to have some kind of warming that that depends on latitude. Certainly he knew that. But what he didn't put in at first, and what turned out to be the missing ingredient, was that there's also a heating effect that goes east to west. That is, the, the heating over the oceans is different from the heating over the continents. And that makes a difference too. So when he included that east to west or longitudinal aspect as well as the latitude, then he found he could get a system that was deterministic and did not repeat itself. Just what he was looking for. All right, now, where's the chaos in this? So while studying his artificial weather, Lorenz happened across something that we now call the butterfly effect, which refers to the extreme sensitivity of a chaotic system to tiny, imperceptible changes in its initial conditions. We call it the butterfly effect because uh, there's a sort of image that you have in mind of a butterfly, hypothetical of course, some imaginary butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil, creating little air currents whose long-term effect is to ultimately trigger a tornado in Texas. That's the idea of the butterfly effect. So Lorenz found something like this in his computer simulations, and he certainly wasn't looking for it. Here's how the discovery came. It's a great story. He, he was rerunning a simulation that he had done. He was, he had, people used to love coming to his office to watch this artificial weather blowing by. You know, I mean, of course, there were no computer graphics. You were just seeing numbers and charts going up and down, but still. So, so he was rerunning some, one of his simulations, and he wanted to project farther into the future than he, than he had. So what he did was he ran the simulation up to a certain point and then stopped it. And he recorded the numbers. The, the computer was printing out these numbers. He recorded them, wrote them down, and then used those numbers as a new starting point to then integrate even farther forward into the future. Well, of course, these were slow computers, so he knew that it would take a while. And he put in these numbers that had occurred midway through the first simulation, typed them in, and then went down the hall to go get a cup of coffee. We know this. He wrote this. He told us this story. It's in his, a book, too, that Lorenz has written. 
So he goes down the hall, gets his cup of coffee, and two months of artificial weather have now gone by by the time he comes back. Great. So he comes back, looks at the, the printout of the new, the, you know, the extension of the earlier weather, and he finds that it doesn't look anything like the weather he was seeing the first time, which seems really weird because he started it midway through an old simulation. It should have given the same weather up to the end and then carried on from there, but it didn't. So what the heck is going on? Well, Lorenz wasn't really as shocked as we might be because this kind of thing used to happen with his computer a lot. <laughs> okay. I mean, first of all, he suspected it could be a weak vacuum tube. Tubes were blowing out and it was tough in those days. So it could be that. He looked all through there and he didn't see any problems with any tubes. It could be bugs, literally, right? Bugs used to get into computers and cause trouble. But it didn't seem to be that the computer was clean. So he really was puzzled and started scratching his head over it and thought, all right, I, can't, I don't, can't see what the problem is with the machine, but maybe if I can localize the problem and figure out sort of where in my computer printout the deviation first occurred, that might help because he could then give that information to the repairman. He had knew that from previous experience and it would speed up the fixing of the machine. Okay, so he starts looking at the, the two printouts, the, the old one and the new one, and he sees that there is no sudden mistake. That, in fact, what he had first thought, that they disagreed, it wasn't really true. They agreed perfectly at first. But then as he's sort of tracing through the numbers, he sees, wait a second, this one now differs by one, by one in the last decimal place. And then he keeps going down the column. Oh, wait a second. Now it differs by two. Now it's off by three. Now it's off in the next decimal place. The error is growing as he goes farther into the future with the discrepancy between the old run and the new run doubling in size about every four days. So that was a clue. Can you guess what the problem was? Well, the clue revealed the culprit. The initial conditions that he used when he started the second run midway through the first, they had not actually been the same in the two simulations. Why not? He tried. He wrote down the numbers. Well, why not? The reason is that what he was printing out on his computer was three digits, 0.628, numbers like that. He needed to do that to save space on the printout. So he would print out just three-digit numbers, but in fact, his computer in its internal arithmetic was computing with six digits. So, you know, 0.628172. And, and those were just getting lopped off, truncated. What had happened then is that by ignoring those truncated terms that he couldn't see in the printout, Lorenz was, was creating round-off errors in the fourth decimal place. And those were growing exponentially fast and ultimately overwhelming and changing the weather itself. That little fourth decimal place was like the butterfly, and that changed the weather. So let me now show you a, a modern computer simulation of this effect. And keep in mind that it's much easier for us to do what we're about to do than it was for Lorenz, who was just printing out numbers on a slow computer and so on. We're going to just see a real computer graphic of this very fast. To be honest, the simulation I'm going to show you is not exactly Lorenz's original weather model. It's Lorenz's later model, the famous Lorenz equations, which are much simpler than his original weather model. This only uses three variables, whereas his used 12. But it's basically the same idea, and it shows the same butterfly effect, and so I feel like I'm not really being 
scandalous using this one. Okay, so what, what you're going to see in this simulation before I start showing you, just to get yourself oriented, is the standard kind of graph called a time series. That is, you'll see a variable, which in this case is going to represent the spin of a certain water wheel that I'll discuss in the next lecture. But so there's some variable, a spin as a function of time, and you're going to see it bobbling up and down. Okay, so watch the, the graph. All right, we're going to start the solution from some initial condition, and there it goes. And so you see a variable that at first is oscillating, and the oscillations appear to be growing. They're getting bigger, 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 and then, whoa, something different happens. And now it's starting to look like it's not repeating. It's aperiodic. This is the sort of thing Lorenz wanted, remember, weather that wouldn't exactly repeat. So you're seeing some kind of aperiodic signal, which after all was what he was after. He wanted to make non-periodic behavior from a deterministic system. And there, there's an example of such a thing. All right, next, you're going to see me start midway through the yellow curve. I'll start midway through this simulation, and whereas I've been keeping six digits of accuracy, I'm going to now only keep three. So when I hit the restart button, you'll see a blue curve that at first will track the yellow curve. It'll go right on top of it, just like Lorenz's numbers agreed at first but then you'll see it diverge. Okay, you see the, the blue is right on top of the yellow, now it's gone. Now they have totally different futures. And the difference was, as I say, the blue curve was this truncated version in which I kept only three digits, 506, from a number that was 506127 originally. All right, so that's what the butterfly effect looks like. Good agreement here, and then radical divergence after that. All right, so back to our story then. What are the broader implications of Lorenz's work? That is, we've got this butterfly effect, but really, so what? Well, the butterfly effect is the signature of chaos. This is the thing that defines chaos practically, that here was a deterministic system, which in the long term is unpredictable because any tiny error gets amplified exponentially fast and, and in this case made the artificial weather unpredictable. The implication of this is that the real weather, which is surely more complicated than, than what you're seeing in the computer, is also very likely to be impossible to predict into the long term. Now, we have to talk about how long term is long term. That'll be discussed a bit in the next lecture. But, but the, for now, the, that's a quantitative detail. The real point is, even if we had a perfect model of the atmosphere and we knew everything there was to know about the laws governing it, the inevitable errors in our measurements of the current state of the atmosphere would very quickly grow, snowballing, until they make any forecast look silly. There's also an interesting lesson here about the discovery process, which I think holds broader lessons for science than just chaos theory, which is that Lorenz was serendipitous in discovering the butterfly effect, and that's not the same as being lucky. He didn't discover it by accident. He discovered it by serendipity. And here's the distinction. Lorenz was not just blundering around. He was deliberately looking for something. He was looking for a non-periodic system that was deterministic to test a forecasting method. So what that did was it made his mind alert. He's looking for something. He's keenly vigilant. He's ready to see trouble or anything unexpected. And he did. It just turned out to be something he wasn't looking for. It was much more interesting than what he was trying to do. It was chaos. But it was because of his frame of mind. You know, that famous line from Pasteur about chance favors only the prepared mind. This is the way that you make scientific discoveries by serendipity. Well, also, Lorenz's research strategy changed everything 
about the way we do modern chaos research. So he adopted Poincaré's pictorial approach, as we'll see in the next lecture, but he strengthened it enormously by using a modern computer to simulate his system and graph the results. Instead of advancing the simulated weather frame by frame with formulas, the way Newton would have tried to do by solving a differential equation, or by picturing state space in his, in his head, the way Poincaré had to, not having computers, Lorenz had the computer grind forward one instant at a time, pushing those differential equations and their solutions forward. So the, with the computer as a weapon for solving or attacking problems, he could go much farther than, than Poincaré had. But really, that's not the big innovation. The big innovation was the way he used the computer. As I say, it was not just a number cruncher. It was a kind of mind amplifier, a telescope for the mind that let him imagine the inconceivable. Suddenly, scientists could see the consequences of the laws of motion, even though they still couldn't write formulas for, for those solutions. Computers were now giving intuition. So in retrospect, I think this is the answer to this question, why did chaos theory have to wait until the 1960s to really get going? Without the computer to perform millions of calculations in the blink of an eye, scientists couldn't begin to fathom what their equations were trying to tell them. So in the next lecture, we'll take a step back and we'll think about the butterfly effect from a more philosophical perspective and ask questions like, what does it tell us about the course of our own lives, about destiny, about fate, and, and how can we make sense of a chaotic world given that we can't really predict? Well, stay tuned. I'll see you next time.